Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thanks for subscribing, downloading, rating. Really appreciate it. Um, coming up in this program, we're doing some um, uh, some really interesting stuff. We're going to speak about the umbilical cord because um, when my first son was born, it was such a it was such a rush. And when I say a rush, I don't mean like it was really exciting. I mean it was just really really quick. Um, if if you know anything about the dilation, uh, like it went from like zero to ten in the space of like ten minutes or fifteen minutes, uh, and it was absolute rush. And it the whole thing was just so surreal to to be looking at for starters, just being in this place with all these doctors around and your wife is in agony and eyes wild, like you see animals who are like just really like it was really really traumatic to be there, and I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have time to even think about what was happening to my wife and and the outcomes. I hadn't really considered, like, they, these these doctors were concerned and I hadn't thought we could lose the baby. I could lose my wife. It was so weird. And then the baby comes out and our son, Casper, came out and he, uh, he was grey and he didn't make any noise except for a sort of a bleating. And it was just so, it was so odd, the whole thing. But there's this moment when I was in um, the, the delivery room and I, I was handed this umbilical cord to cut with scissors. And it was such a weird thing to sort of, to cut the tie between the mother and the child that she'd been carrying for nine months. And this sort of weird, sort of squidgy yoke, um, slippery and, and hard to get a hold of in some ways. And to cut that free and then the baby's whisked away and you're like, what the hell just happened? It's so weird. But that act, that that snipping of the umbilical cord, the decision to do that and when to do that, turns out it's quite important. We're going to be speaking to researchers um, who have looked at how long we should wait before we do that and what the outcomes are. Really, really interesting. We're also going to speak to... Um, Assistant Professor Tomas O'Ryan is from Trinity College Dublin. He's been on the programme a couple of times. He does amazing work looking at memories, using mice models and trying to track memories as they're formed, as they're recalled in the brain. He's going to talk to us about his work on engrams and, and how um, a recent paper is starting to show how memories get linked to each other. Really, really interesting stuff. A reminder, if you'd like to get in contact with us, it's science at newstalk.com for email or Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. It's time to look back uh, at the week's science news as we do every single week for the last 13 years. Um, joining us now is Dr. Laura Healy, which uh, I believe is the first time we've called you that on the show. Congratulations on your PhD. How do you feel? Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, it's been <laughs> How does it feel? Good, good, good. Very, very happy. Delighted to finally have the title. Great, great. And uh, Philip Smith, science communicator and all round science TV guy. I'll go with that. Yeah. yeah. How are you? Good? Good, yeah. I'm happy, glad to be here, John. Laura, let's start with you and uh, seabed mining. This is um, one of those stories that kind of reminded me of the things that we do that we shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. So luckily, these researchers are actually looking at the impact of something before we actually do it, which is good news. Um, But I'm not so sold that the results that they've generated are actually going to make the changes that we need. So this is about jellyfish who live in the pelagic zone of the sea. The pelagic zone starts about 200 metres below sea level and goes down as deep as 11 kilometres, which is very hard to get my head around. Hmm. Um, This is where lots of animals live, like tuna, turtles, sharks, whales. 
And we've only explored 1% of the seafloor. We know more actually about the surface of Mars and Mercury than we do about the seafloor. And yet we're about to start mining it for minerals, um, silver, gold, cobalt, copper, which have a number of um, problems with how we currently mine them on, on land. So these were researchers coming from Norway and from the Helmholtz Centre for Ocean Research, which is a bit of a mouthful in Germany. They decided to simulate the impact of deep sea mining vehicles on jellyfish. And so if you imagine these jellyfish live in really nice, peaceful, dark, still environments in the deep ocean. Not much happens. No, no. They, they don't have any uh, newspapers or breaking news or anything like that. <laughs> it's very nice and chill down there. Um, and what this mining equipment is going to do is completely disrupt that. It's going to introduce lots of sediment into their environments. It's going to be noisy. There's probably going to um, be a lot of light down there. It's going to completely um, wreak havoc on their current environment. So what these researchers did was they went down and took these jellyfish up to the surface of the earth. They um, brought them to a lab and then they put them into tanks with water and basically started messing with their environment. So it isn't the the, the nicest way to treat animals, but um, in this case, it was they were trying to prove a point, basically. And they introduced lots of sediment into the tanks and, spoiler alert, the jellyfish did not like it. They started expressing a number of stress response genes and also they started producing excess amounts of mucus, which is something they do when they're disturbed anyway to like try and put up a barrier against pathogens. But um, in this case, the amount of mucus was so excessive, the scientists believe that it's going to completely deplete their energy and would eventually kill them over time. Mm. They were experiencing this in their day-to-day environments. Yeah, I mean, none of that is hugely surprising if you're going to scrape the bottom of the of the floor, mm-hmm. uh, mining um, the seabed. Uh, jellyfish are just one of a number of animals, you would imagine, that um, won't do well of that, out of that in, in, in situation. Yeah. But in terms of the, the, the plan, like, these are, are, are significant um, machines. They will um, presumably have a, a huge effect on the marine um, uh, life there. What is the benefit? What, what are they getting that we don't get on land? I mean, is there a huge um, treasure trove at the bottom of the sea? Yeah, apparently. Like, we already do mine um, the shallower parts of the sea, around 200 metres. But down there, we're... Um, assuming that we're going to find like a treasure chest of silver and gold and cobalt. And I don't know if you've heard about the controversy over the cobalt mines in the Congo. It's um, horrific for the people who are involved and the environment there. And there is a huge need for sustainable alternatives. But, you know, they're saying that this could be, but they, they clearly haven't done the research in the, the deep, dark ocean. We don't know if it really will be a better option. Were these researchers paid to do an assessment or did they see this was being announced and then they decided um, to demonstrate what sort of effect? Because realistically, um, you know, the feelings of a jellyfish are rarely going to win out over big business, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. I think it was the latter. I think they, they're really trying to preemptively avoid this from happening. And as you just said, people don't care about mucus-covered jellyfish. I, I think if they had picked an animal, unfortunately, that maybe has a face like a turtle, people would <laughs> care more, which is the way... You could draw, draw, draw a face on the jellyfish. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so, I mean, while, while it, it is interesting, and, and they did get a good bit of press over it, I mean... Like you'd think that we're, we'd start to wake up the sort of things that we're doing to environments. The question is, do do we really need these things and how valuable are they? Um, it comes down to the end of it. Um, Phil, our second story uh, has to do with 3D printing. 
Yes. So this is kind of putting stuff down as opposed to taking things away, but also taking things away at the same time. <laughs> I shall explain uh, totally clearly in a second. Uh, 3D printing is obviously advancing rapidly around the world. Uh, there is a range of materials that can be used, but this study that we're talking about that comes out of ETH Zurich and also with uh, partners in MIT, for the first time, researchers have succeeded in printing a robotic hand with bones, ligaments and tendons printed from different polymers using a new laser scanning technique. So, and the laser scanning technique bit is actually the bit that's almost the snazziest bit of this. So previously when you were 3D printing and you would have used, you, we can 3D print with lots of stuff, carbon fibre, plastics, all of these different things, even wood. Uh, and what you would do is that you would uh, have things that are cure at different rates. It would be fast curing materials. But you could never really do it with slow curing materials and curing means the hardening process. Yeah. So what you would do is you 3D print, you'd probably have a UV light or something, you'd harden it and if there was any imperfections you'd scrape things away with a scraper and things would chip away if they were hard, fast curing. With slow curing things you would generally leave a residue on the scraper which means it kind of like negates the process. So what they're now using is uh, this scanning, laser scanning technology which they will put a layer down they will scan it really, really quickly, see what levels, what imperfections are at, in that, at that level. And if something needs a little bit of a boost, it will add another slightly little bit more. If something's a little bit high, it will add a little bit less next time to kind of build layers, not exactly the same thickness each time, but moderate the thickness. Wow, okay, really so to get level. real, really high, high um, quality printing. Really high quality printing, but also the types of materials that they're using are a little bit different as well. So they're using this new te technology, like I said, it's coming out of ETH Zurich. They're uh, with printing this robotic hand with all those ligaments bones and tendings. They're, they're using something um, called a, a, a thiolene. Now, I had to ask someone, obviously, as a chemist, exactly what is a thiolene. So I got in touch with Anya Coogan, who's a chemist in, in, in Trinity. She was saying it's a type of organic, organic chemically, a chemistry reaction that involves a thiol. And a thiol is uh, any organic chemical that contains a sulfur and a hydrogen bond. And then it, re re it reacts with an alkaline, which is something which is a carbon-carbon bond, to make something called a thiester. And these things are actually a little bit more malleable. They're soft. And one of the reasons that this uh, this thing is happening, and particularly what uh, the company in MIT, which is a spin-out, is looking at doing, is creating robotic arms or hands that are softer, so they're not built out of metal, they're not built out of stuff that can harm particularly people, or like they, they even mentioned, like a, a long hook that could like lift you out of it or whatever else. Yeah. But if it's softer, it's safer. So by using this different curing speed and the scanning together, it's safer, but you can do this multi-layered, multi-material kind of stuff print, which means you can do these tendons, which they have done in ETH Zurich, which is really, really interesting because it can all be done at one time in one go. Right. Not to like print one bit, then print another bit. It's all together using it. But the scanning bit is the really, really snazzy interest. Very interesting. And of course, you know, what you ideally want to do is, is biomimicry. You really want to have, you know, strength and yet at the same time, that softness that you, you get from flesh under the fingers uh, and, you know, to improve on bionic hands and, and make them usable in that way. Uh, is fantastic. Love to see one of them in action, um, which presumably will happen soon enough. They have printed a model actually as a demonstration in, in Zurich as well in Switzerland. So we're going to see what actually comes next, which, you know, they have it in hand. Laura, our third story has to do with uh, caviar. I have to say, I love this one. Yeah, it's great. So of all the problems that we're currently facing in the world, this is one that really, really enrages me. Um, it turns out the caviar you've been buying in your weekly shop is uh, counterfeit. Potentially, potentially. That's what these researchers found. Um, 
So this was discovered by conservation scientists from the Leibniz Institute in Germany. All these German uh, institutes have some hard names. Um, and they swapped their white lab coats for fake moustaches and went undercover to these different shops and restaurants across Europe and started buying these products that were labelled as caviar, but they suspected might be something else. Um, so if you don't know, caviar comes from a specific type of fish, the sturgeon. And this has been a protected species in Europe since 1998 due to overfishing for this very reason. Um, it's illegal to catch this fish and it is now only found in certain pockets of the River Danube and the Black Sea. Um, but you can, however, get it from fish farms. Yeah. Um, but people don't want the fish farm stuff. They want the wild caviar. Of course. Um, so while there's a demand for wild caviar, there's going to be a supply, unfortunately. And um, what these scientists did was they took those samples into a lab. They did some genetic analysis. And what they found was 21% of the products were from these wild sources. So they were illegal caviar. And over 60%, pretty much the bulk of the, the rest of the products were mislabeled in some way. Either the country of origin was false, um, some of them came from outside the EU, um, and then a lot of them were claiming to be wild on the label, but in reality they came from fish farms. So that's not actually illegal, but it is very misleading to the consumer who thinks they're getting this illegal wild product, but um, they're actually getting fish farmed stuff. Oh, I so, thought you were going to say that half of it wasn't even... Sturgeon eggs. Well, this is the, the final uh, group that they found in the products was um, this, a number of products were actually not from sturgeon at all. They were <laughs> from catfish. So it was catfish caviar, which I think would make a great new show on MTV. Um, so the takeaway message here really is just be careful where you get your caviar from. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a note. <laughs> it's a note uh, to make sure that you are very careful about where you buy your caviar. Mm-hmm. Uh, really and do you know what? Like, of course it is. I mean, that's that's what happens with anything that is um, is expensive and luxury. There's always going to be someone providing a knockoff version. And you know, if it's a protected species and we're talking about its progeny, we're talking about its eggs that yeah. you want to eat. Like, that's not, you're not eating one fish, you're eating potentially like, you know, a hundred of these mm-hmm. fish. Like, it's come on, we got to, like... We should like we should just be regulating it. We should not be allow that uh, allowing wild caviar anymore. We just don't allow it. Yeah, um, that doesn't seem to me like a big stretch, is it? I, I mean, I don't think the populace rising up against me, Philip. If I say let's just ban wild caviar, like I think you'll have a lot of support. I don't think it's going to be the next thing through legislation uh, as an <laughs> urgent bill. But yeah, let's let's not have fake caviar. Our final story has to do with erections. Yes, you. Yeah, you hit me with that one. Uh, oh, I hope we didn't actually. Oh my God! Sorry, don't. Uh, I won't. Uh, this is actually, you know, we're talking about space exploration. We're talking about going deep into space, and we also need to understand the physiological responses that we get when we go there. So, as if kind of like homesickness, uh, if you had, I suppose, the elevated cancer risk, the uh, the, the thinner bones, all of these things, as if space... Losing was, height, I believe you can also you lose can, you height. You do actually lose height. Well, you gain, you actually are slightly taller when you come back because of the, the compression of gravity hasn't pulled you down as much. But in terms of your bone density as well and how that's all put together, yes, you will be uh, a, a little bit shorter. But this is, uh, is this the first study of its kind? It's claimed to assess the impact of galactic radiation and weightlessness on male sexual health. So NASA-funded researchers found that galactic cosmic rays and to the lesser extent microgravity as well can impair the function of erectile tissues which can lead to lasting effects as in lasting as in decades 
of effects. So not short-term stuff. On on who? Like they, astronauts. Like, on astronauts? Yes. So, so, so do we have details on the methodology of testing astronaut erections in space? Please say we have something. We, we don't. We have a, a Dr. Lefevre, and hopefully he's providing to be a favour to astronauts. They have done some tests on, on rats. Uh, they suspended them in harnesses at a 32-degree angle and exposed them to simulated galast- galactic cosmic rays at the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory in New York. Oh so, yeah, I know. I mean, there was a grant for this. <laughs> they wrote it. But this is something that we really actually need to look at. And I know this might sound a little bit silly, but we're, we're, we, there's a renewed focus on deep space explorations. We've got, like, NASA and major other space uh, agencies are preparing for long-term expeditions. And you have, like the more ambitious voyages to Mars. You've got the new Artemis program going back to the moon. So people who are on the ISS are kind of shielded by Earth. Earth has this great shield that protects us here, but also the ISS kind of sits in it. So as you go out, you're going to be exposed to these uh, different things. So what they're trying to look at is the exposed, uh, I suppose, gamma rays and X-rays that stream to us from the stars and other heavenly bodies coming towards us. We're really looking at what preventative measures that we can have along these type of things. But... The thing that they found alongside of this, that it, it seems to be treatable with particular uh, antioxidants and other things. So it, it, even if... Viagra. Viagra potentially. Like, it's not me, baby. It's cos- cosmic uh, galactic rays. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. It's treatable, so don't worry. Don't be too deflated. Do you know, I spoke to a um, an astronaut once and on the slide, completely off the record, said, look, between the astronaut community, it's fairly well acknowledged that the first couple to have sex in space already did it. <gasps> very interesting. Phil Smith and Dr. Laura Healy, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, okay, on the way, why we should delay clamping the umbilical cord for preterm and newborn babies. Welcome back to Future Proof on Newstalk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, I run a conference called SciComm for anyone who communicates science as part of their role. So maybe you're a researcher, a scientist, someone studying science and need to communicate it as part of your remit. Or maybe you run festivals or work in industry that's science related. Uh, The event explores things like how we communicate AI effectively, medicine, biodiversity. If you're into communicating science, think you'd like it. Check it out. SCICOM.ie. Now, It is a surreal moment when a nurse hands you a scissors and asks you to cut the umbilical cord of your child. In that very moment, creating essentially a new person. But new research suggests that when we cut that cord can have an impact on the baby's health outcomes. Joining me now to discuss this is Professor Gene Dempsey. He's Horgan Chair in Neonatology at the Infant Centre at UCC. Welcome to the programme, Gene. Let's start off with some basic anatomy because when I stopped to think about it, I was like, how does the... The cord goes into the placenta, the placenta, the baby's the placenta. Just give me the anatomy of what goes on inside the womb, please, before the baby comes out. Okay, yeah, and that's, it's a very important aspect, I guess, to, to start off with. So the in one sense, the placenta serves as the baby's lungs and kidneys, for want of a better description. So there's a communication from the placenta to the baby's umbilicus, so his belly button, uh, and that connection is the umbilical cord. And that cord serves a very important purpose. It has a vein in it and it has two arteries. And the vein delivers oxygen and nutrients to the baby. And the arteries take away uh, metabolites, take away carbon dioxide, get filtered, and then you start that entire process again. So in one sense, uh, it's important to think of 
the placenta as the lungs of the fetus. Because in the womb, the fetus, the lungs are filled with lung fluid. There is no exchange of gas like you and I. You know, we take a breath in, we take oxygen in, we clear out carbon dioxide. There is none of that happening in the womb. Mm. The lungs are filled with fluid. In fact, there's very, very little blood flow to the lungs in the womb. Approximately 5% or thereabouts of, of the baby's cardiac output goes to the lungs. So wow. it's actually, yeah, it's really, uh, when, you, when you think about this, it's fascinating. It's amazing. And actually, this research that we're, we're going to touch on, I think, is, I think, really, really exciting. So in the womb, the lungs are bypassed by a channel. So the blood is pumped from the right side of the heart out into the pulmonary artery, which is the big blood vessel that goes to our lungs. But then it bypasses the lungs along a channel called the ductus arteriosus. And that channel connects to the aorta. That The aorta is that big blood vessel that runs down our body. And the blood then is diverted from the lungs to the placenta to pick up oxygen. So the, the, the umbilical cord is a really, really important part of delivering oxygen from the placenta to the baby. Right. Um, you haven't mentioned food. I thought food came from the placenta. Does it not? Yeah. So there's nutrients delivered from the placenta via the umbilical vein to the baby. Um, and, and also then products that the baby creates are transferred via the umbilical arteries back to the placenta to be disposed of. So Okay, so it has a sort of internal plumbing system, um, essentially, to get rid of the waste. Yes, exactly. God, it's fascinating, isn't it? We're so we're so beautifully formed in in so many ways. Like right from the very beginning, it's it's just a perfect system in many ways. So uh, tell me uh, about this um, this cord. There's um, different layers, uh, and you you talked about the the arteries and veins. There's different layers to it because when I felt it in my hands, it was quite a strong. Um, firm uh, structure. Yeah, it's um, interesting. So it's, it's, as I said, it's made up of uh, three vessels. And those vessels are surrounded by um, this kind of gelatinous material. If you felt the cord, it feels almost jelly-like in a sense. That's called Wharton's jelly. And that in a sense, uh, and then there's a membrane over that. The amnion is over the the Wharton's uh, jelly. And, And that in a sense protects the vessels. Um, and if you do remember the, the cord when you saw it, it, it's somewhat coiled or curled, if you will. You know, it's not a straight. Yeah, wh- wh- yeah. Why is that? Is that because is that the baby's turning around in the belly? Not, not, no, I don't think so. It's more <laughs> to do with the, the development of it. So the cord, typically it's about uh, probably around 50 centimeters in length at term, thereabouts, you know, with somewhere around 40 to 60. And, and of course, sometimes it can be excessively short and sometimes it could be very long and and in both scenarios it can cause potentially problems um well, why would a long um umbilical cord be problematic well i guess um you know in, in some senses you have this concept of actually developing a knot in the cord so you could actually get what's called a true knot in the cord where the baby actually manages to twist around and, and actually create a cord uh, sorry a knot in the cord which can potentially impact on the delivery of of oxygen to the baby during um, during labor or actually in the womb itself. Um, so uh, rare enough occurrence, but can be problematic. Oh, and um, actually, now I'm reflecting on my own birth, not that I remember it, but my, my mum told me that actually I, I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. 
So is, yeah. is that an issue of it being too long or is it happen regularly enough with a normal sized umbilical cord? I, I, I guess, um, you know, it, the, the longer it is, the more likely it is to potentially cause those issues. And mm-hmm. um, but it can occur. Um, it's called a nuchal cord. So when it's around the neck um, and thankfully, we have expert obstetricians and midwives who will manage that when the baby's head is delivered and carefully um, uh, clamp the cord. But or look after the court, sorry, prior prior to delivery. Um, I guess other potential problems with a very long cord is sometimes when the waters go, um, you can actually get what's called a prolapse of the cord. So the cord could actually come down into the uh, vagina and ultimately cause problems then. And that needs to be managed promptly, often straight away to go for a cesarean section when that uh, event happens. Yeah, it, it, when it happens, and certainly for for my first son it happened so fast it seemed like things can go south very very quickly um and what you want to do is you want to create the safest environment for that a baby to come out um as as not as necessarily as quickly but as safely as possible and so one of the things that um research is looking at is the clamping and the cutting of the cord so can you tell me what 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 a clamping of the cord is and why we do it so um, interestingly, when you, when you think of the, the Wharton's jelly, that gelatinous material that you described in, in terms of feeling the cord, when, when babies are delivered and the cord is exposed to air, actually that material somewhat begins to const- or shrink or, and it ultimately constricts the vessels, for want of a, a better description, over time. But in essence, um, when, when we talk about we talk about transitioning from being inside the womb to being outside the womb, that, that process ultimately involves the cord being clamped. So you, you've got to disconnect, for want of a better description, the baby from the placenta to the outside world, to or circulation. And an or circulation is very different to that of the fetus inside. So there are dramatic changes that happen over those first minutes or so when babies are delivered. And, and really... Yeah. Our understanding of it is only evolving in the last. We always, suppose we've we've always had an understanding of it, but the detail of that is really continuing to evolve. And you know, when we look at at things like recommendations around cord management, it has evolved significantly over the years and will continue to evolve. And actually, the the evidence from the the recent systematic reviews that have been uh, published recently, they really are the most definitive that says. This is the best evidence to date that delayed cord clamping or deferred cord clamping is beneficial for babies, both term and in particular preterm infants. Before we go into that, I have a number of questions, actually, because this is so interesting to me that the the clamping of the cord, is that necessary? Because you mentioned the Wharton's jelly sort of um, starts to uh, uh, sort of retreat in a way. Um, presumably that's because before we had hospitals who could um, clamp and cut the cord, um, these these newborn babies, the, the cord would just disintegrate? Or what? Like, why do we need to cut the cord at all or, or clamp the cord at all? Um, does the baby not as eventually become free anyway? What actually happens if we don't cut the cord? Because you know, 10,000 years ago, they didn't have hospitals and scissors, obviously. Well... Functionally, the cord and the pulsations stop after a period of time. So the literature will vary on that. So it may be anywhere from four or five minutes to longer, you know, out to 15 or 20 minutes at times where 
the, the cord may continue to pulsate. But when the placenta is separated from the maternal circulation, then it no longer is a, a structure that is pulsatile, if you will, or that is perfused. So ultimately, it will shrivel. Uh, yeah. shrivel. And, you know, you, you may have heard the term lotus births, where actually people will leave the placenta attached for a period of time. When the placenta comes out, is that um, is that all of the attachment to the mother complete? So when the placenta comes out, you have baby attached the cord and the placenta, and then there's and there's nothing else. Is that and and when you say eventually this cord will wither away, I mean, are we talking minutes, hours, days, or 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 weeks? If we just left the baby with the cord, I'm just wondering, you know, from an evolutionary point of view how how we evolved this amazing ability to sort of separate two beings into one naturally and and you know reasonably safely yeah so i i guess if you if you think of the management of this the third stage of labor and that is that the baby's delivered and you're ultimately delivering the placenta so if you were not clamping the cord uh you would be delivering the placenta so you would be putting traction on the cord and ultimately delivering the placenta. And so the baby would remain attached to the placenta via the cord, but the placenta would be exteriorized and away from the mum. So it doesn't serve a function anymore in that regard. Um, So I guess the, the previously the, the management of the third stage of labor was ultimately to clamp the cord and to put traction on the on the cord that's attached to the placenta still, and and remove the placenta, and I guess one of the main reasons behind this active stage was to prevent postpartum hemorrhage in the mum, and that yes. I think probably led to the practice of ultimately clamping the cord early, taking the baby away, and then delivering the placenta to avoid postpartum hemorrhage. I see. Okay, so uh, we clamp the cord to uh, speed up that process. Um, and new research is suggesting that de- delaying that is uh, can have a positive impacts depending on the, the situation. So um, in terms of preterm uh, infants, does it have a significant effect? What sort of um, differences are we talking about and, 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 and why would we delay the cord? So there have been many studies over the last 20, 30 years addressing the management of delayed versus milking the cord versus immediately clamping the cord. And all of this literature now has been put together into these very large systematic reviews. And so these are what we call individual patient meta-analysis. So you're taking uh, individual patient data and putting them all together and ultimately um, uh, getting uh, outcome data that addresses really important parameters such as mortality. And the data from this review is staggering. It's really, really exciting. So when we, when we look at all this data, uh, in very simple terms, what it says is for every 40 preterm infants who receive delayed cord clamping instead of immediate cord clamping, one extra baby survives. Wow. Like, that is a staggering figure. Yeah. And, okay, there's a confidence interval around that, and that confidence interval is somewhere from 20-something, and these are terms we use called numbers needed to treat, so somewhere from 26 to 140. But the, the mean is 40. So what we're saying is for every 40 preterm infants who have delayed cord clamping, one baby survives more 
compared to getting immediate cord clamping. And, and the basis behind that is there are many reasons behind it. Um, one of the most interesting things from the review is the fact that fewer babies receive blood transfusions and babies have higher blood counts. So what it's saying is this process results in a placental transfusion to the baby at the time of delivery. Well, a really interesting speaking with you, Professor Jean Dempsey, Horgan Chair in Neonatology at the Infant Centre at UCC. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. And if you have memories of, uh, of, of cutting the cord, like what was it like? Uh, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We'll get to all the stories in the podcast. <laughs> I have to say, I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And it's really funny, like this is just a tiny thing, but the yield of one preterm child making it, surviving um, at a 40, uh, it's just, it's really, really, um, it's it's great to see that sort of a result out of something so small, so easy to do. Because sometimes when you try and make that gain in the world of, of, of health, there's so much investment and, uh, you know, drugs or, or intervention required to do that. This is a really easy thing to do, to stand there and wait. Um, and, and, and really interesting to unpack the, the reasons for, for why. Um, time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And if you were listening, we had a great old time. We had a live show with Thanks to Science Foundation Ireland because it was Science Week. And they were exploring the theme of human and so um, we asked, what are humanity's biggest threats? And uh, so we talked uh, about um, the threat of volcanic eruption and a supervolcano, what that would mean, the threat of meteors or, or a huge solar flare. Um, we talked about the threat of fungi. And, uh, and it was a really, really interesting time. Dave on Twitter says, delighted to hear my PhD student Jerry Clancy talk about the threat of fungi to the human race. A great piece for Science Week. Sounds like plenty more research is required. Yeah, Jerry was a real human klaxon for the dangers of fungi. Did not see that coming, I have to say. He was like, we're all going to die. Fungus is going to take us all. Uh, very interesting. Another says, very impressed by Jerry Clancy and his topic on fungal spores. Uh, that was Louise on Twitter. Yeah, lots of people love that piece because, you know, and I, I, when I when we pitched this idea of you know going into the the venue and saying look we're going to talk about the you know the end of the human race that was it all oh, it's going to be depressing it wasn't depressing it was great fun so listen back to it um, we were talking about AI uh, with Robert Ross and uh, we were trying to figure out how much of a threat is that and he was like not like essential but maybe societal um, uh, Robert uh, Bridget Wicklow says. Your AI guest said that he is not overly concerned with it being a bodily threat, but more of a societal one. Yeah. Uh, but is a societal threat not a bodily threat at the end of the day? If AI can be used to manipulate, manipulate the very fabric of the free societies we live in, undermine democracy, sow discord and make us rethink what we thought was real, then is the next step after that not complete chaos? It is war and death, surely. Well, we really, we really got to a space there with you, Bridget. But I mean, I know what you mean. Um, if society breaks down, uh, uh, maybe maybe it's uh, Lord of the Flies. But I, I, I mean, I think there's other things that have to happen uh, for that to happen. Uh, but but I know what you mean. Um, it is. It's, I think I think it's a very serious threat, but n maybe not in the same way a giant meteor is. Um, Joan in Dublin says, I'm more concerned with just how reliant we are on AI now. If it all crumbles from underneath us, are we not at risk of losing the knowledge we have relied on for centuries without AI? The Egyptians forgot how to build the pyramids 
or at least we forgot how to build the pyramids. Are we making ourselves dumber? Well, Joan, I um, I have ChatGPT Plus as a service, and so I got to try the new voice version, and I knew it would be a looking glass moment. I knew when I tried it, it would be a real what the is going on and I had a conversation with it. I I asked um my phone what are who are more um guilty of complacency the scientists that failed to predict the Lalkula earthquake or the um volcanologists who failed to uh, sufficiently warn the 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 tourists and um and guides of White Island. And I had this conversation where it weighed up the pros and cons and culpability. And we had a, I had a conversation with a, an expert in both seismology and volcanology at a time of my choosing. I mean, I think we're going to make ourselves much smarter because if parents are sitting down with their kids and they don't understand the question they're asking, they can say, explain this subject to us like we're 12 years old and then they can have a discussion about it. I mean, this is opening up knowledge in a way that I, I think people have not fully grasped. Um, that, that you will have an expert on every subject known to man or women <laughs> at your fingertips at any stage. And that that can only be a good thing for education, is my thoughts, as long as the, the, it's accurate, which which 99% of the time it is. Um, so do check it out. It's really, really odd to be able to, to do that and, and actually have, you know, an AI, a super smart AI available to chat whenever you want about anything and give you good information. We're also talking about volcanoes and super volcanoes and uh, Yellowstone, which if it goes, it would be pretty significant. Uh, John and Navin says, how do we still not have the capacity to properly predict a volcanic eruption? It still baffles me. Well, good news, uh, John. I'm currently um, editing a documentary all about that thing. I traveled to the Galapagos with Chris Bean's team and we're going we're gonna to explore that uh, in a, an upcoming documentary. Believe me, you'll hear all about it. And just on the fungi, um, we had two texts in, one from Robbie saying, Candida auris and our complete lack of a defense against it and other fungi is terrifying. Hearing that the course of action for infestations and infections is just to burn everything is something you might read about during the Dark Ages. True enough. And another says... There are more than 4 million species of fungus and we only know 150,000 of them. How is that possible? That's just a good question. How do we know there's 4 million species if we only know 150,000 of them? I guess there's some sort of extrapolation there. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, we will be doing another live event really, really soon because we had great fun at that one. Thanks to everyone for coming and thanks to Science Foundation Ireland for supporting. There is a conference going on. It's called SciComm. It's about how we communicate science uh, and I full disclosure, run this conference, but uh, it would be great to see you there. SciComm, S-C-I-C-O-M dot I-E, if you in any way communicate science to the outside world. That's it for me. Thanks to Maurice O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Hugo da Silva on sound. We'll be back um, with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10. On News Talk.